right, you can turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7 this morning. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17 today. As we continue our look at this uh, wonderful book of the Bible that has so much to say about uh, even our world today and, of course, the world of the future. And we are, the title of our message today is Salvation is from our God. So that our hymns this morning, particularly the last one, were very uh, appropriate, even though that happens by chance. Uh, We find ourselves now looking at the future section of the book. We've uh, looked at chapter one, where we saw the vision of the risen Christ. He is the one who is transmitting this book, if you will, to the Apostle John, who wrote it on the island of Patmos in about, oh, AD 95 or so. And we see in that vision the authority with which this book comes to us, that he is uh, uh, full full of grace and truth and glory, and he is the one that this book comes from. And then uh, John was instructed to write about the things which are, that was we saw were messages to literal churches that existed in the first century in chapters 2 and 3. And they, the, the messages to them obviously were very applicable to us as well because we are living in the same church age that they were living in, dealing with a lot of the same problems that they, that they dealt with in that time period. So we can could take a lot away from those messages. And then we moved into this future section, which really entails the rest of the book of Revelation. And we find ourselves in this section describing the seven-year tribulation period that ultimately leads to Christ coming again and establishing his kingdom upon the earth. We saw in, and that's, that's what the book of Revelation is all about. Jesus Christ coming again and fulfilling everything that the Bible has to say about the way life should be on this earth. And we call that uh, the millennial kingdom that leads into the eternal state, that the way that we will live forever with God. The book of Revelation describes in large part the events that lead up to that coming of Jesus Christ and establishment of his kingdom on the earth. We saw in chapter 6 that this tribulation period uh, begins there when this scroll is begun to be opened by the Lord. He is the lamb who breaks all of the seals that we see in chapter 6. So he is the one. uh, He receives the scroll from God the Father, and then God the Son begins to to break the seals that are, that are uh, and in that he is unveiling these future events that will take place in this seven-year tribulation period in the future that is not happening now. <laughs> Point of emphasis there. Uh, and we saw that, that the tribulation, it begins with a covenant. We know that from the Old Testament as well, Daniel 9 27, the first seal was the rider on the white horse, a, a, an imitation Christ. We can also call him an antichrist. That's why he's riding on a white horse. And he goes out conquering and to conquer, but he doesn't do it militarily at, at that time. Then we saw in the second seal that war comes to the earth, a rider on a white horse, uh, kind of warfare on, a, on an unprecedented scale. I think we can we can assume, and I uh, have been doing a lot of study uh, lately on Ezekiel thirty eight and thirty nine, and that's that's a that's a war that could potentially fit into that second seal. May, maybe not necessarily. There's a lot of different theories on the timing of that, but it's a good idea to when we're trying to put together a timeline to take events from the scriptures and and put them into place from things that we see in the Bible. And, and I think seal number two is perhaps a pretty good place to put that, uh, at least the beginning of that conflict 
there. Then with the third seal, there was uh, really un unprecedented economic decline that leads to famine and measuring out of food. The fourth seal, death comes upon the earth in an unprecedented scale. A quarter of the earth's population is killed in that fourth seal, it specifically says, which today would be about 1.75 billion people, uh, if my memory is correct. At any rate, it's over a billion people. They're eight, uh, coming up on 8 billion people, so we're pretty close to being able to call that just 2 billion people uh, who are going to die in that fourth seal, uh, which is war, famine, disease, wild animals, just really unprecedented death. Uh, we're going to see that as far as uh, percentages of the earth are talking about at any rate in the, in the trumpets, an even larger percentage of people are going to die in the trumpet judgments. And these are just specific judgments that are mentioned. It doesn't include things like seal number five, where there are martyrs who are dying. And there, and we see in other judgments, seal number two, people obviously died in that warfare. Those aren't included in the fourth seal in these trumpet judgments. Uh, this is uh, truly the Bible saying that people are going to be become very scarce in the tribulation period. It mentions that in the Old Testament. This, we see that coming to pass here. Uh, and then in the sixth seal, we see this great earthquake, signs in the, on the earth and signs in the sky, the sun being darkened, stars being dark, uh, the moon turning to, to blood as if it was blood, stars falling from the sky, unprecedented uh, shaking of the very foundations of creation. And then we moved into this break between uh, the sixth seal and the seventh seal, uh, where we where we see uh, an insertion here, kind of a break in the action, the first intermission, if you will, of the tribulation period, where we get some more information about things that have already taken place. That's what chapter seven is is all about. It's not a continuation of the chronology, but it's a break where we see some some highlights from things that have just taken place. Like these, like it says in chapter six and verse 17, the people on the earth who are still alive say, who is able to stand at the end of chapter six? Well, chapter seven tells us some of those who are able to stand. And it begins with this restraining of judgment in verses one through three, until something can happen, and that is the sealing of these Jewish witnesses. Uh, these Jewish people we looked at last week, clearly uh, Jewish people who are sealed, and then today we're going to see the results of their work that they have, that they were doing. But this is uh, where we find ourselves in this intermission here between the first six seals. Then the seventh seal opens up the trumpet judgments. And we'll have another break describing things that have been taking place and even some looking forward to things that will happen in the future of the tribulation also. In our second intermission that we'll have in Revelation 10 through 15 and then on to the rest of the tribulation period that's described with the bold judgments in Revelation 16 through 18. Last time we saw that these uh, individuals are come from the nation of Israel. Very much a, a change in focus of the book, uh, really, that began in chapter 4 pointing to a, a change that's going on in the world, a change of focus. The beginning chapters are very much designed to and show the church, talking about the church. And now we don't see the church anymore, really, in the book of Revelation. We start talking about the nation of Israel and even the 12 tribes of Israel and people coming out specifically 
from these 12 tribes of Israel. You know, after the Gospels, again, another indication of a shift. After the Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, we don't really see these tribes being talked about specifically. And make no mistake, the tribes are very important to the nation of Israel. We see God here is turning his attention back to the nation of Israel, pulling out from these people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 144,000 people sealed for protection, sealed in order to carry out some kind of work for the Lord. These, these, it specifically says, are from the sons of Israel there in, the, in verses 4 through 8 of Revelation 7. They come from Israel. They are Jewish people. There's nothing here to indicate anything other than Jewish people being sealed so that they are protected uh, in, to carry out some sort of mission for the Lord. You can only come to another, a, a different conclusion than that if you have a presupposition about uh, what Israel is today, what it will be in the future, and these kinds of things. The words on the page clearly say sons of Israel, even enumerating the tribes and these this kinds of specific language. So if we don't have a theological presupposition like replacement theology, so the church has replaced Israel. So everywhere we see Israel in the New Testament, uh, obviously that means church. And every, even where we see Israel in the Old Testament, well, that's, that's the church before Christ. That, that is a theological presupposition. That is not reading the words on the, on the page and taking the plain meaning. When we take the plain meaning, we see these people come from Israel, 144 thousand people who do something for the Lord. They were bond servants or slaves for the Lord. And then today we're going to see the result. Most likely the result of their work is this great multitude of people that we see in verses 9 through 17. So the title of the message again today is salvation is from our, our God, we will see the result of the work of these 144,000, the requirement for salvation, and then we'll also see the reward if we make it that far this morning. But we begin with the result, the result of, of the work of these 144,000 bond servants. It says in Revelation 7, 9, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So, the first result is going to be uh, this great multitude. There are actually two results that we see. This great multitude. And then in verses 11 through 12, we're going to see another uh, instance of worship because of this work that has been done by the 144,000. But we begin with this great multitude. Uh, notice... That uh, it says, after these things I looked and behold a great multitude. That behold there is a, a command that is expected to be carried out. We're supposed to pay attention to this, John is saying. And notice that, that it is an uncountable crowd of people is the, the implication there. He says, a great multitude of people. He doesn't give a specific number. Unlike verse 4 of Revelation 7 that says, and I heard the number of those who were sealed 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe of the 12 tribes. There's specific numbers that are are being uh, enumerated there for us to pay attention to. So how many uh, 
uh, Jewish witnesses are there going to be? I would say 144,000, unlike the, those who want to spiritualize or uh, read in their own understanding to the text rather than letting it tell us what it says. When John says 144,000, he means 144,000. When he means a number that can't be counted, that we don't really know, that isn't specifically important for us to know, he uses language like a great multitude. So when John wants to be specific, he knows how to do that. When he wants to say this incredible number of people, he says a great multitude. When he uh, wants to describe how long the Lord's kingdom will last on the earth, he says a thousand years. He says it six times. If he wanted to say some uh, innumerable number of years or some indiscriminate number of years that we can't know or some eternal number of years, well, he would say a great multitude of years or for eternity. John very much knows how to use that language. He knows how to be specific. He knows how to be more broad. So we can take away from this that he is talking about, in this case, a great multitude of people. The specific number isn't important to John. And that, notice that they are standing before the throne. He even says, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues. Again, another uh, difference between the nation of Israel. It's a specific nation, the sons of Israel. He specifically says, we know from the Bible, that's the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the, Jacob is Israel. His name was changed to Israel. He, those people became the nation of Israel. Here, this group, verse 9, they come from every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues, and they are standing before the throne and the Lamb. Histomy is the, is the word for standing there, and it is in the perfect tense. It's a perfect active participle. And it's describing those who are standing before the Lord. And it's in the perfect tense. So that, that is something very easy to uh, skip over. It's something that isn't even clear from the English there that they're standing before the throne. Okay, that's nice. I can picture that in my mind. But the Greek is very specific, showing that it is in the perfect tense. So what does perfect tense mean? It is a past action. They're standing there. We'll see why here in, in a few verses later, why they're standing there. But they're standing there, and it goes on forever. A past action with ongoing consequences. They are standing there uh, before the Lamb. And I'll, I'll give you the answer why they're standing there. They're standing there because they have believed in the Lord. And something happened when that transaction took place. Their permanent standing changed. Their standing went from being separated from God to being standing in front of his throne forevermore because they have passed out of death and into life the same way that you and I can do that. John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. This is something that cannot be reversed for these people or for us today. We are in the Father's hand and in the Lord's hand. John 10, 27 through 29 makes very clear. And nothing can take us out of that uh, grip that we are in, both by the Father and the Son. The same is very true for these individuals who we will see are coming out of the tribulation 
period. That uh, histomy is also an interesting word. Don't want to read too much into it, but it's also a word that is used to describe resurrection in the New Testament. Uh, So these people, uh, I don't know that necessarily, I don't think that they have their resurrected bodies at this point, but the same word is used to describe uh, resurrection in the New Testament. Interestingly, interestingly, enough. But notice that they are also clothed in white garments and they have palm branches in their hands. The the end of verse 9 tells us. So these people look very much uh, the same way that Christians do uh, from an earlier uh, parts of the book of Revelation. We have, we've seen that and we, uh, that Believers in the church age also had white robes, and they are they are clothed in white robes. Parabolo is the the term that is translated as clothed. That also is interestingly in the perfect tense, past action, ongoing uh, consequences or results. That not only are they standing there from now forevermore, but they're also clothed in these white garments that we have seen are representative of righteousness. They have righteousness and they will have it forever. Just the same as uh, those that we saw from Sardis in Revelation 3, 5. The Lord says, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. I think we sung, uh, sang a song about that this morning. Uh, also, having our names confessed before the Father. And it's because of these white garments that we have been given. This is in the passive tense, or passive voice, rather, Uh, The standing was an active. They were the ones who were standing there, but here they have been clothed by someone else uh, is the meaning of the passive voice. It's not something that they did. These clothes were given to them, put on them, and they will be on them forever. And we'll we'll, later on, we're going to see uh, how, again, how that process takes place, this uh, passive voice dressing in the white clothes. But notice also that they have palm branches in their hands. Not, not only are they dressed standing before the throne, dressed in righteousness, the white robes, but they also have palm branches in their hands, which is a, a good indication that they are celebrating the kingdom period. Uh, the book of Leviticus chapter 23 kind of talks a lot about the various festivals that the nation of Israel celebrated. And we've done studies on those in the past and we see how they kind of, uh, not only are they celebrations of for the Lord, but they are also indications of, of uh, how things are playing out in the world uh, with the feast of Passover being the Lord going to the cross and unleavened bread and the feast of first fruits, Christ rising from the dead, literally fulfilling these, these feasts on the very day that they were to take place. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and indwelt people for the first time. Uh, well, the Feast of Tabernacles looks forward to uh, us dwelling with the Lord in His presence. It was celebrated by the Jewish people with palm branches. And here we see these people who have come out of the tribulation. They have palm branches in their hands. They're celebrating this coming kingdom. Much the same thing happened when Christ came to Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday uh, towards the end of his earthly life. John 12 13 says that the people took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him as he was coming into the city and began to shout, Hosea, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. 
those people quickly turned on the Lord, uh, at, which led to his crucifixion. However, there's coming a day when the nation of Israel will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, calling upon him like Jesus said that they would in Matthew 23, towards the end of Matthew 23. Uh, when the nation says that, he will come again and he will establish his kingdom. These people are already, uh, it's kind of like tailgating. They're already celebrating it before it, before it happens. They know it's going to happen. They know they're on the winning team, so they're already celebrating the victory. And notice that they say salvation, well, I'll read it from the NASB, verse 10, it says, and they cry out, this great multitude cries out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now that can be kind of confusing also for us, at least it is to me, salvation to our God. That, that uh, phraseology isn't, is, isn't really great. God doesn't need salvation. <laughs> he, he is the arbiter of salvation. He is the one who gives salvation. The New King James uh, inserts the word belongs there. Some of the other English translations do something uh, similar to that. And that's a, pr- that's a pretty decent rendering of what, what it's actually trying to communicate there. This is in the, this word uh, to there is in the dative case and it it all that to say that it means it typically means in by or with like if you'll remember Ephesians 5:18 uses the same uh case for for the word there for the noun there Ephesians 5:18 and do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation but be filled with the spirit we saw that that that, that means that with there means by means of, be filled by means of the Spirit uh, in that instance. This is kind of similar, saying that salvation is from our God. Salvation is with our God. Salvation is by our God, is what, is what the people are uh, proclaiming here. And that is very much in keeping with the Bible. Salvation is not something that we get to determine the, the means of or how, how it happens. God in his word tells us how salvation happens. Uh, man's plan for salvation is what we see in paganism and results in immorality, uh, eventually results in people being sacrificed and these, these kinds of horrendous things that the nation of Israel uh, got wrapped up, got wrapped up in. It also ends man's idea for salvation. Also, invariably, ends up in works—a works-based salvation, something that we have to do ourselves in order to to make ourselves right with God. That is very much not what is being expressed here in verse. 10. Salvation is by our God. It belongs to God. Salvation is from God. It is his plan, his doing. We as sinful people must align ourselves, our thinking with God's thinking and God's plan in order to have salvation. That is, that is what it comes, comes down to. Paul says in Titus 3, 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, not even righteous deeds, not even the good ones uh, save us, but he saved us according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is God's plan for us. His plan is that Jesus Christ, God the Son, would come out of heaven, live upon the earth in, the, in a human body, 
and pay the penalty for our sins so that, that we, sinful humanity, could have salvation. That has absolutely nothing to do with even the good things that we do. The good things that we do don't make us uh, right with God. The good thing that Jesus Christ did on the cross is the only avenue for us to be made right with him. It is the only avenue for these people who came out of the tribulation that are being described here. He is the only path for them to be made right, for them to be clothed in the white garments, for them to be standing before the throne anymore is only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's what Ephesians chapter 1 was all about. If you remember, we spent many, many weeks studying that passage, verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians 1, to show that salvation is from our God. And we are in, we are in Him, in Christ, in His plan, through faith in Him. We're going to see more on that in the next section. But it is God's plan and a part of the plan is that people must believe. They must trust in God's plan. He, he designed the plan that way. It is all His work, His doing. And we trust, we put ourselves aside, we lower ourselves in our thinking, humble ourselves to realize that there is nothing that I can do to make myself right with God. I must trust completely in His plan and His work. Otherwise, it's not going to be good enough. My feeble works are not good enough to make myself right in the eyes of a holy God. I must uh, depend completely upon Him. And that's what this great multitude who comes out of the tribulation is proclaiming there in verse 10. And notice the next result in verse 11 that takes place. The first result is this great multitude who recognizes that salvation comes from God. Next we see in verse 11, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So again, we see these angels the elders and the four living creatures, they, they were standing uh, before the throne. This is uh, technically what is a pluperfect. So this is a, a past tense event that took place with really no reference to, the pre to what's going on now. They, they were already there is what the, what the indication is there. They have already been there. They're here now and they're going to be forever. And notice also that they worshiped. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. They're, they are, and there's like this whole uh, sevenfold blessing, or if you will, or seven uh, different things that they that they mention here: blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might are all uh, part of who God is in uh, in infinite measures. All of God is all of those things, and this is uh, very similar to the worship that we saw going on in chapter four. Verses eight through eleven, chapter five, verses eight through ten. Just another, uh, another incredible scene of of worship that is taking place. And notice that they are recognizing who God is in their worship. It has nothing to do with them 
what they're doing, their trials and tribulations, how awful life is, and, and oh, poor me. There is none of that going on there. It is all directed towards God and the incredible things that He is and that He's done and that He will do. It's a, worship is a recognition of God's rule and uh, superiority to us. That's what, what worship really is. Recognizing who He is and the things that He has done and has very little to do with us. And so uh, it kind of... This little phrase or sentence came to me this morning in terms of uh, music anyway. It's when the words of our songs have more me's than these, we're doing something wrong. When we're singing more about us and our problems and, and difficulties rather than the God, then, then we're not really worshiping the God of the universe, like these uh, beings are here, these angels, the elders, the church, these four living creatures that we're not really even entirely sure what they are. We uh, describe them as angelic beings, but they're really uh, technically described as four living creatures. They are falling on their faces in every one of these instances of this worship taking place. They are simply recognizing who God is, what he's done, and occasionally they recognize some great things that he's going to do uh, in the future. And we are, we can worship God in many different ways. We worship him by praying to him. Prayer is, is a great act of worship. It is a sign that you are recognizing that you are essentially helpless before God. You need his input. You need to align your way of thinking with his way of thinking. You need help in a, in a specific situation. Some nation is invading you and your life is at threat. You need to call out to God for, for safety and help in these kinds of situations. You're facing surgery or you're facing... <laughs> Uh, health difficulties, any, any number of things. We are to always be praying. That is, a, uh, that is a recognition that God is greater than you are and you are relying upon him for help. And we can do that through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.16, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Prayer is a great recognition that God is greater than we are and we need his help. That's worship. Jesus talked about that in Matthew 6, verses 7 through 13. Very similar kind of idea. We're to worship God in song, according to Ephesians 5 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord recognizing him for the great things he's done. We worship God by learning about him. There's one that you don't uh, hear too much of anymore. John 4, 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Uh, a dream that I heard uh, or had last night while I was sleeping is not truth. Uh, a voice that I hear in my head is not truth. God's word is truth. John 17, 17 tells us we worship him through understanding more of his word. Isaiah 40 and verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. That is something that we ought to know, ought to know uh, and apply to our lives. We worship God by obedience. There's another one that we might not like or might not might not want to hear but we recognize he is greater than we are by obeying him John 14:23 Jesus answered and said to him if anyone loves me he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him he who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine but the father's who sent me 
we worship God in obedience, recognizing that he is greater than, than we are and we need to do what he says. Kind of like the parent-child relationship. When a child is obeying, he's recognizing that, that his parents are greater than he is and he needs to do what they say. That's why it's a really good idea to teach your kids uh, right from wrong and enforce those things. It is preparing them to understand who God is and how to have a relationship with him. We also worship God in service. Romans 12:1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We worship God when we use our spiritual gifts that he has given to us. So the worship is not uh, the 15 minutes or 20 minutes before the sermon starts or whatever church you go to, that may be an hour. Uh, that's not worship completely. It can be part of it. Obviously, we, we pray, singing songs, those are two things specifically mentioned there, but there's so much more to worship than uh, 20 minutes or even an hour uh, on a Sunday morning. That's, that's not a good definition of worship. It's, it's actually our whole lives. That's kind of the point that Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 12. Our very lives are a way to worship God. And these, uh, the elders and angels and uh, these beings in heaven are a good pattern for us to see what worship is, recognizing who God is for, and for the great things that he has done for us and he will do in the future. Next, notice the requirement that we have for this great multitude to be in heaven. Revelation 7 and verse 13. Then it says, then one of the elders answered saying to me, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Who are these? In the white robes, notice that John doesn't know. He answers and says uh, in verse 14, my Lord, you know. In other words, uh, I don't know, but you do. Uh, why, don't you, why don't you go ahead and tell me? But John is obviously familiar with people who are dressed and look very similar to these. We've already seen that this morning, but uh, Revelation 3, 4, those from Sardis, uh, you, uh, Jesus speaking to the, the, the pastor of the church of Sardis there, but John is the one taking down the message for them. But you, speaking of the church in Sardis, have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and, and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Church age people uh, described here as having white robes. Verse 18 of Revelation 3. Speaking to Laodicea, I advise, to, to, uh, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see the Lord. They're indicating to this uh, obviously very disobedient church that they needed to change some things. One of those would be the purchase of uh, white garments. John here doesn't know who these are dressed in white garments, even though he clearly knows that church people are pictured uh, 
in the future and even then as having white garments that they've received from the Lord. Notice another thing that since Revelation chapter 4, like I mentioned before, we haven't seen the word church. John's focus has been uh, really completely changed to looking forward to the future after he's been called up to, to heaven. And so he doesn't know who these individuals are who came out of this tribulation. That's uh, kind of interesting. The church has already been taken to heaven is the implication. These people aren't, uh, the church isn't coming out of the future. They're already there in heaven. They have already been rescued from the hour of testing, if you'll remember. Revelation 3.10, another message to a church, the church in Philadelphia. Keep in mind the things that we have studied so far in Revelation, beginning in Revelation 6. Now, as we reread Revelation 3.10, message to a church. Because you have kept, Revelation 3.10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. They are going to be kept from, taken out of, protected from, not just protected from, but taken out of the world so that they won't have to endure this hour of testing, our figure of speech for period of time of testing that is about to come upon the whole earth. The church uh, is, we can see if we look at the entirety of Revelation as chronological church age, then John is called up to heaven to see the things that will take place in the future before those things begin to take place in Revelation chapter 6, we very much can see that the reason why John doesn't know who these are who are dressed in white garments is because they're not the church. And he isn't sure. The church is already in heaven. So who are they? This uh, elder begins to tell John who they are in verse 14. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. They have come out of the great tribulation. There's a, a, an instance where that term great tribulation could probably be capitalized there in verse 14 would make it a little bit more clear uh, description of where these people are coming from. That term tribulation there is the Greek term thlipsis that we have spent some time uh, studying in the past. And this word, like every other word in the Bible, very much depends on the context that it is used. Here it is clearly describing something specific, something that John doesn't understand. They're coming out of the great tribulation. John understands about trials and tribulation, flipsis with a small T. Uh, he very much understands that. We've seen him use it earlier in the book of Revelation to describe the difficulties of life. The New Testament is very clear on that. Uh, Acts chapter 7 is one example. Stephen's sermon talking about the, the trials and the tribulation and the life of Joseph when he's describing a history of the Jewish people. He uses thlipsis to describe Joseph's life. Uh, the book of Acts in chapter 11 uses thlipsis to describe the difficulties due to persecution that the church uh, was facing at that time that caused Christianity to spread outside of of Israel and the and Judea and Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. That was caused by flipsis, small t, tribulation, trials. Uh, Acts fourteen twenty. 
2. Paul says, through many tribulations, small t, we must enter the kingdom of God. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, flipsis, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted, comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Second uh, Corinthians, uh, that was Second Corinthians one three through five. Second Corinthians four seventeen. Uh, John sixteen thirty three. Many 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 examples of this term thlipsis being used to describe uh, the difficulties of life that we that we face. People in the past have faced. People in the future will face. However. This term flipsis is also used to describe a very specific future period of time. Again, context determines the meaning of words. Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, a discourse that, that he specifically says is describing a future period of time. Jesus says, Matthew 24, 24, 21, for then there will be great tribulation. Such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Matthew 24, 29, same discourse. Jesus says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its lights. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be Shaken, describing this seven-year tribulation period with that same word, philipsis. Very specific uh, Olivet Discourse, giving very specific information about events that will take place in the future, very much like what we're reading in Revelation, describing a specific period of time that will take place in the future. Now, this isn't just only New Testament uh, doctrine, as we see here, all of these are Old Testament, come from the Hebrew Bible. A, a good uh, Jewish person who understood his Bible would very much understand that there's going to be a time of difficulty, tribulation, trouble, you might even call it, before the Messiah comes to the earth to establish his kingdom. Even all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 4 and verse 29, uh, the Lord says, but from there you, Israel, will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. When you are in distress, and all these things have come upon you in the latter days. You will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. They're going to have difficulty in the latter days. Psalm 2 describes uh, in some detail, this uh, future difficulty that they're going to face. Isaiah 34, and this is a very brief listing <laughs> synopsis of the tribulation period described in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 30 in verse 4 says, Now these are the words which the Lord spoke concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? Verse 7, Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress or the time of Jacob's trouble. But he will be saved 
from it. Daniel 12, verse 1, Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, Israel, will arise, and there will be a time of distress, such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, Israel, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Romans chapter 11 describes all the people of the nation of Israel being rescued at this same period of time uh, in the future. Obadiah 15 through 21, the entire book of Zephaniah, Zechariah 12, 1 through 14, Zechariah 14, 1 through 4. We don't have time to read all of these passages. The book of Joel describes the tribulation as well. There's so many, so many more that we could list. The seven year tribulation period talked about in Old and New Testament leads up to the coming of Christ and the coming of his kingdom. This great multitude came out of the tribulation period. How did they come out? Well, they came out through believing a very strong indication to us that people will be saved during the tribulation period. Do not, do not accept when somebody tells you, oh, you better get saved uh, before the rapture, before the tribulation begins, because after that, it's too late. Not saying you don't you want to put it off. I don't think you want to put it off. Today is the day of salvation. Believe today if you haven't believed. However, the Bible is very clear that people will be saved during the tribulation. In fact, the number is so great that John doesn't give us the number. And he knows how to, to, how to give numbers as big as 200 million. We're going to hear about a 200 million man army later in the book of Revelation. So he knows about big numbers. This one is so big, he doesn't uh, tell us what it is. It is a great multitude which no one could count from every nation, all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne of God. And where did they come from? They, verse 14, have come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They came out of the tribulation by believing in the blood of the Lamb. I know that word believe isn't there, but I'm going to show you how it actually is, even though we don't, the concept is there, even though we don't see it. They have washed and made their robes white in the blood of the Lamb. That is synonymous with believing. Acts 15, 9, he, uh, he made no distinction between us and them, speaking of there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. As far as the Lord is concerned at this point of time, cleansing their hearts by faith. Our hearts are cleansed, made right with God by faith, by believing, by trusting in his plan. Uh, that's what these people did. That's the same thing that we do. And also, it's interesting to note that they, they have washed as in the aorist tense. There's so much uh, truth in the, that's wrapped up in the language, coincidentally enough, that this is the way God has chosen to communicate with us in his written word. And it's very, very precise, more precise than even uh, a spoken language. John uses the aorist tense to say they have washed. Aorist tense, a one, one time snapshot of time. They did this. And that's it. That's what it took. Them washing their garments in the blood of the Lamb. This is another case that in in the blood, that word in is better represented by the phrase by means of. They have washed their garments by means of 
the blood of the lamb. So it's not necessarily that they have a vat of blood and they took their garments and, and washed them in that blood and then they became white. They have been cleansed by the blood of the lamb. The blood is the means through which we have our uh, forgiveness, our salvation. Christ did the work through the shedding of his blood. We wash ourselves, our garments, by means of the work that he did on our behalf. The penalty for sin is death. That's a, the shedding of blood is a, is a phrase that is representative of death. The penalty for sin is death. God made that pretty clear in, in the book of Genesis. The entire book of Genesis makes that uh, very obvious that we are created to live forever. Adam sinned. He was then condemned to death. He passes that on to the rest of, of humanity. Jesus Christ paid that penalty for all of mankind's sins. Or, uh, since he is sinless, he is eternal God his shed blood can pay the penalty for us, for all sin. And so we can have, our, have the forgiveness of our sins by believing in what he did because he's the one who paid the penalty for our sin and our death. That can be taken away because he has uh, accomplished all that was needed for that. That's called a substitutionary death. He died in our place. That's the, uh, the doctrine of substitution, if you will. Jesus Christ died as a substitute for us. His death satisfied God the Father, because after all, it is God the Father's plan for salvation. That's the technical term for that is propitiation. God the Father is satisfied by God the Son's death. And now when we believe, or these in the tribulation period, believe in what Christ did, His righteousness is imputed to us. It's given to us, credited to us, because we're trusting in what Christ did on our behalf. So Jesus is the substitute. His death is a propitiation. It satisfies God and his righteousness is imputed to us when we believe in him. These coming out of the tribulation have washed their garments by means of the shed blood of the lamb. Jesus's death didn't just pay the penalty for a select group of people, it pays the penalty for uh, all, all people. And those who trust in him receive the salvation. Uh, Jesus talks about his shed blood in Luke twenty two twenty something we'll celebrate uh, next week uh, after the service. Luke twenty two twenty, 20, and in the same way, it says he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. He shed the blood for the new covenant to take place. The new covenant being the forgiveness of sins. He is the bread of life. That's what he talks about in John chapter six, uh, shedding his blood, his body being broken for sins. We, if we don't eat his body and drink his blood, we don't have salvation. Not talking about the communion table, symbolic language for believing in him, trusting in his sacrifice, trusting in his shed blood, taking it in, making it a, a part of who we are by trusting, uh, trusting in him. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. A lot of times we like to just cut that passage off right there for some reason. Uh, showing all people are, are sinners, that's true. 
All people also have access to salvation. Verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. These people put their faith in Jesus Christ. They trusted in his shed blood and thereby came out of the tribulation with salvation, able to stand before Jesus Christ. And that was our scripture reading this morning. Hebrews will close with this, Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And that is exactly what we're going to see these doing in the tribulation next week. Uh, as they come out of the tribulation, then they will be serving God. We see the 144,000, obviously uh, Jewish believers who have been sealed serving the living God. That is what we are to do as well with our lives. Uh, we are to serve the living God. Salvation is from our God. He is the one who planned it before the very uh, creation of the world, before it was even founded. He knew exactly what was going to happen, and he made provision for it in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And he only asked one, one thing from us, and it isn't to join a church or give to a church or uh, do good works. It is to trust and believe in what he has done for us, and he will give us uh, every possible spiritual blessing if we would just trust in him. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the book of Revelation and the incredible truths that we find here about who you are, uh, what you have done in the past, what you are doing right now, and what you will do in the future. And we are just... Uh, left amazed at these incredible things uh, uh, that describe who you are and what you're doing. And I just pray, Lord, that we would go away from this place motivated to serve you with our lives because of the great thing that you did for us on the cross and shedding your blood for our sins so that we can enjoy eternal life with you. I just pray, Lord, that you would encourage us in this week to come, walk with us, as we walk with you, guide our steps, and may your will be carried out through, through our obedience to, do, to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.